0: And we are back on the big wake-up call and time for my next guest. He is one of the best-selling authors in the world. And his uh, newest, City on Fire, is available where books are sold. We are going to chat with Don Winslow. Don, good morning and uh, thanks for calling in today.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: How are things going where you are? What's going on today?
1: You know, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in a hotel and I'm kind of doing this. And then I'll finish up my day in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, at a bookstore, uh, meeting with readers and things. So it's a busy day.
0: So uh, what do we have here in City on Fire?
1: The book follows, well, first, it's the first of a trilogy. And the three books follow a guy named Danny Ryan. And in this first book, we meet him as a longshoreman in Providence, Rhode Island. He marries into the Irish mob and ends up dragged into a war between the Irish and the Italians
0: for control of the New England crime world. Is he aware that he's marrying into the mob?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, look, in Rhode Island, everybody knows everybody. You know, I've, I've always said that the motto of Rhode Island should be, I know a guy. Okay. So, he, yeah, he's very aware of it. You know, it's it's a very small world and a very small state. And so he knows what he's getting into, definitely.
0: Now, was this always intended to be a trilogy? Or do you start writing and like, oh, man, I know where I can go with this, and you're, you're going to set it up for three volumes?
1: You know, uh, yeah i always thought of this as a trilogy when i when i first had this idea i had the idea about what the arc of danny's life was going to be and it fell very nicely into three parts you know all of which end with kind of what's next for the guy so you know we meet him in new england but in book two uh he's in hollywood and in book three he's in las vegas and by the way all three books have been written so yeah uh, I always plan this for three books.
0: Okay, so you've already written the third one. You've turned those all in, and then going back to talk about volume one, do you kind of have to refamiliarize yourself with the book to do to do a tour like this?
1: <laughs> I did. You're dead on, man. You know because I wrote. You know I finished it several years ago. Okay. And so I did have to go back. And and read and go, oh, what's that character's name? What did I do with this guy? And even in writing the trilogy, you know, I had to go back a little by the time I was at book three to make sure I didn't have some guy, you know, pop up that, that I'd killed in book
0: one. I hear that from novelists quite a bit, and I'm just amazed at the productivity because, yeah, we'll be talking about one book. They've already turned their next one in and are halfway through a third. It's just how you guys are able to keep these characters straight.
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. The schizophrenia helps, I guess. <laughs> but, you know... It's, um, yeah, people don't realize that, you know, by the time a book comes out, it's gone through a very long process of, you know, copy editing and marketing and production and all of that. And and we, because that's what we do, we're professional writers, have moved on, you know, to the next projects.
0: Now, this is being, I've heard this is a reference to a retelling of Virgil's. I think this is kind of a, a modern day. Iliad, do you run into any copyright issues from, you know, great, 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 great times 1,000 grandchildren?
1: (laughs) None of Homer's great, 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 grandchildren have contacted me so far. Oh, good. Uh, We'll see, you know, it's (laughs) it's that kind of world, but but so far, so good.
0: But that's interesting that there is so much in, in civilization, in human behavior, in cities, in groups, that you're drawing parallels between... 25 B.C. and and gang wars today?
1: You know, it's amazing. Um, When I started reading the Iliad, for instance, which, you know, of course, tells about the fall of Troy, it begins with an incident involving a woman, i.e. Helen of Troy. I was so struck because it reminded me so much of an incident that happened in real life in New England in the late 1960s in the crime world. And as I started to read more and more of the classics, I saw more and more of the parallels, And the great themes that that we deal with in my beloved crime genre, you know, were all done by the Greeks and the Romans. Power, betrayal, loyalty, murder, revenge, forgiveness, love, lust, they're all there.
0: Have you seen, and and maybe this would be great for this trilogy, your books like translated into into Greek? Because boy, wouldn't that be uh, just getting back to those roots?
1: Well, that's funny you say that. I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, I'm very lucky. I think my books are out in 36 languages, including Greek. So that's a fascinating idea. I'll have to look into that because it is out in Greek.
0: I always wonder if, like you've said, okay, you'll you'll see an author. Oh, their books have been translated into 45 different languages. If you've ever taken your book, the translation, translate that back into English and, and see how close they nailed it.
1: <laughs> well, I wish I were that multilingual, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I speak English, you know, some Spanish, enough French to annoy people in restaurants, and and Swahili is probably my best language. I don't know that my book's published in Swahili, but, uh, (laughs) so I I don't have the skills to do it, but I have sat with people reading them, you know, at events in foreign languages, and and sometimes it disturbs me that they sound better, you
0: know? Well, there, as you mentioned, you know, uh, French to be dainty. There are just some languages that flow more freely than English. So I would think as a writer, that's kind of gratifying that someone in, in other countries, other languages love your book so much that uh, they, they want to get it uh, the way they can.
1: Oh, it's really fun. You know, in Germany, for instance, the guy who does my audio books and who goes on tour with me is also the voice of James Bond. Oh, He dubs James Bond into German for the films. So he's got that great voice, you know, and he sits there and reads my stuff. And I, I think about James Bond.
0: That would be a great gig to be the German James Bond, which is interesting because if there's ever a German in a James Bond film, it's just a guy speaking, you know, English with a very bad German accent.
1: Isn't that the truth? You know, and and uh, one time in Germany, one of the Bond films had just opened, and uh, they opened the theater for us in an afternoon. And About six of us, including Dietmar, this this actor, went and watched it. It was so much fun. I was sitting with him, and I'd elbow him, you know, to, to get him to speak the lines ahead of time. It was really <laughs> a lot of fun.
0: And speaking of movies, and you've had uh, several of your projects adapted. I'm reading uh, this particular trilogy, is uh, is going to be a film. How soon after you have something going are people interested in film rights? I mean, oh, this is a Don Winslow project. We know we have a winner here.
1: You know what? This book was bought in its manuscript form. Nice. And they hadn't even read the other two books because I hadn't written them yet. Um, so it was really nice. On a Friday afternoon, my agent Shane called up and said, are uh, you going to be home for about 20 minutes? And I said, yeah, I'm packing to leave. But he said, well, you got a big decision to make in a few minutes, and called up, and, and Sony just bought the whole trilogy, sort of on faith.
0: Well, that has to feel pretty good. That'll, um, you know, feel pretty good going into your weekend, if that happens on a Friday.
1: Yeah, it was nice. You know, we were about to drive cross-country, which we do every year, we being my wife and I. So, yeah, that's a nice little bonus, you know.
0: City on Fire, the first of uh, upcoming trilogy, is available where books are sold. The author, of course, my guest, Don Winslow. And uh, Don, great talking to you and appreciate you calling in today.
1: Great talking to you and thank you for having me.
0: And welcome back to The Big Wake-Up Call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest, who has written one of the most talked-about books of the year, a debut novel, Skandar and the Unicorn Thief. And we're going to visit with A.F. Stedman. And good morning, and thanks for joining me today.
2: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, during the interview, would you like to be referred to as Annabelle, or do you want me to stick with A.F. so we stay on brand?
2: Annabelle is fine.
0: Well, how are, how are you then? How are things going where you are?
2: Yeah, really well, really well. Um, it's not too early for me. It's the afternoon in London. So, um, so no, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. Very excited that the book comes out today.
0: Yeah, I'm reading that uh, you grew up in the Kent countryside, and, and I think the only two things I know, of course, we know Edward, Duke of Kent, and then from Money Python, I, I think Tunbridge Wells is somewhere near Kent, and that's my knowledge. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that wasn't so far from me. That was only about an hour from me. so well, yeah. <laughs> great.
0: Totally on the same page. So um, briefly, obviously without any spoilers, can you share with us uh, a little bit about the book, Skandar and the Unicorn Thief?
3: Of
2: course. So Skandar and the Unicorn Thief is set in a world of warrior unicorns, elemental magic, and unlikely heroes. Uh, the story follows 13-year-old Skandar Smith, who has always dreamed of becoming a unicorn rider. But when the most powerful unicorn in the world is stolen, Skandar and his friends have to take to the skies and battle bloodthirsty unicorns and a deadly enemy.
0: See, now, I love the idea of seeing unicorns. Of course, we've seen magical uniforms, uh, unicorns all the time. My daughter was just playing with Twilight Sparkle and Rainbow Dash, but having bloodthirsty oh. unicorns, I, I love that idea. How did you come up with the concept of a bloodthirsty unicorn?
2: So I had the idea about eight years ago. Um, the, this image of a, of a boy riding this unicorn just came into my mind as I was, I was walking home and and i looked at it and i just thought that that unicorn doesn't look like it belongs in a fairy tale it looks like it belongs in a nightmare and that was the kind of first idea but i i've never really liked fluffy friendly unicorns i think i've i've always been more of a dragon person um and and i i kind of as those lots of the kind of fluffy merchandise started coming into the shops i just i just thought wouldn't it be interesting to to think about unicorns in a different way, and also I've never trusted that they're friendly because they have the big horn on their heads. It looks very dangerous, um, and so I, I thought I'd, I'd play with the idea.
0: Well, how can they be deadly when we have learned by now that friendship is magic?
2: <laughs> well, the interesting thing about Skandar is that um, in his world there are there are wild unicorns which are are terrible really really scary monsters and then there are bonded unicorns so those unicorns they bond with a rider and um, their destined rider and although they're still ferocious and deadly and and they do like eating kind of like not not your your average uh horse kind of food uh, they that bond between them there is a kind of friendship there and 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 a deep bond that that kind of it plays with the, the idea of a horse and a, and a, and a human or, or, or with your pets. So, so it's not, you know, friendship is still magic in Skanda.
0: <laughs> I, I love, and you wrote in the acknowledgments about the cover that the design team was able to reflect the world that lived in your imagination. And just reading you say that, looking at the cover here, it's like, yeah, I, I totally get a sense of what this could be about. This wasn't just slapped together like this really captures the, the essence of the book.
2: Yeah, I I was really worried about seeing the cover because I just thought how are they going to do this? And I'm I'm a very visual writer. And so I see I see these in my head all the time and, you know, battling and using the elements. And I just thought how how are they going to recreate that? But as soon as I saw the first kind of sketches of it, I just knew that they understood and they understood that it wasn't kind of the normal sort of unicorn.
0: Well, let's talk about that writing visually. And are you as you're writing this, are you picturing this cinematically? As oh, this is how I would love to see it portrayed. Because now I'm reading about a huge publishing deal, a huge movie deal that doesn't happen very often for for a debut novel.
2: Yeah. So I I think I've always I I, I didn't really I wasn't thinking about film when I wrote it at all. When you're writing a book, you just normally just think it's terrible. So oh, yeah. um, I believe that. But but um but I think I do write very. I, I play the scenes in my mind. So if I can't see it in my mind, I, I do struggle to write it because I'm I'm almost describing what I'm seeing. Um and then I think when, when Sony read the book, they could also see it too. Um and and that really helped with, with how they they want to kind of visualize the world.
0: I'm so glad to hear you say that and to continue to hear it from other successful authors and artists that, oh, as I'm writing it, I just think it's terrible because I I write songs, some of which have done very well. But every single time I'm writing this, you get in the the mindset of, oh, I hate this. I hate everything I've done. And I don't know if there's just something about the creative process that, you know, makes us want to just beat ourselves up.
2: (laughs) I think so. There must be. Also, it doesn't get easier because then this is going to be a five book series. So with books, so I went through exactly the same thing. So, so yeah. Sadly, sadly that feeling has stayed. But but at least now there are real readers. So that's exciting.
0: Had you in intended in any way for this to be a multiple series? Like, did you stop at a certain point, thinking, okay, I'll I'll resolve the story here? But I know there's going to be a, a, another adventure coming up.
2: So I think when I when I was. Working with my agent, I really thought this this could be a series because uh, I wanted the children in the book to grow up as the series went on, um, and they have each year of training as unicorn riders, and there's five years, so it made sense to me. Um, but I think I think I didn't really imagine that anyone else would want would want it to to be more than one. So so it is really good. <laughs>
0: Now a lot of authors especially novelists I will talk to they are promoting one book they have already turned in a second and are writing the third is that in uh, any way reflecting where you're at
2: Yes it absolutely is um so yeah second second book is is in edits third book is is being starting to be written um and so yeah and and here I am promoting the first one um also I have I've recently read the first draft of the film script. So that's also something um, I'm, I'm doing at the moment.
0: So then do you have to do, you know, a little bit of personal prep for these media tours to make sure, oh, yeah, this happens in the book and that happens in the screenplay? Although you lived with this first book for so long, I think you would be, you know, just intimately familiar with it.
2: Yeah, I think I still it's still really the, the story of my heart. And, and I, I, yeah, I've read it a lot of times now. But I, what what actually really helps is um, listening to the audio book, which is also out today, uh, read by David Dawson. He is brilliant at reading it. And I love listening to it because he just brings it to life in a way that the way that I, you know, when I read it, it's in my voice. But he, he does all the different voices and it's wonderful.
0: Isn't that fun to hear someone else kind of bring what you do to life? And I've I've narrated some things, and I the best compliment you can get is like, "Well, you you said exactly what I was thinking, but in a unique way." And I'm like, "That that's exactly what you're going for."
2: Yeah, exactly. And some of the characters he's given them certain accents, and I just when I when yeah. I heard it, I thought that's perfect. Um, I can I can imagine this character even more. It's it's a wonderful creative experience.
0: Well, the highly anticipated uh, debut novel, Scandor and the Unicorn Thief, is now available where books are sold. The author is my guest, A.F. Stedman, and thank you very much for joining me today, and congratulations on the book.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Wake
3: up, wake up.
0: And welcome back to the big wake up call. I'm Ryan Gatenby and time for my next guest was the founder of one of the most popular and rewarded finance blogs called Mixed Up Money. She is the author of a brand new book called Financial First Aid, Essential Tools for Confident Secure Money Management. And we're going to visit with Alyssa Davies and Alyssa, good morning. Welcome to the show.
3: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me.
0: How are you? How are things going where you are?
3: everything's going great. Uh, groceries are still expensive, but I'm able to afford my latte and that's all that really matters to me.
0: You know, I think this is the first time a lot of people really got a sense of how real inflation is and how it's happening because it always seemed like such an abstract concept. Oh, inflation's up 2%, but I think a lot of people going to the grocery store and especially pumping gas are realizing, oh, this is real. This, this is really hitting us significantly.
3: Absolutely. It's one of those moments when you realize how expensive life can be if you aren't prepared, if you don't have that financial security that so many of us crave.
0: So tell us a little bit about the book, Financial First Aid. And was a lot of this, did the inspiration come from a lot of the, uh, the mixed up money topics you were writing about?
3: Definitely. A lot of it has come with a lot of the money mistakes or financial errors I've made throughout my life. And also, I have high-functioning anxiety. So any way that I can take back control of areas in my life is key for me. And so that's where financial emergency funds and creating backup plans has given me back the power and made me feel more financially free.
0: All right. I relate to you with a high-functioning anxiety. And that's mainly the reason I'm doing radio instead of trying for TV because there it's a little bit more comfortable. But that, but that's interesting that um, that you can admit you're coming from a place of mistakes. And I feel like we see so many uh, so-called financial experts are like, well, here I am and I'm on top and here's how I did it. And uh, I'm perfect. And you can be perfect too.
3: I totally agree. I think that a lot of the financial advice that we're used to seeing is fear-based, shame-based, yes. and rooted yes. in guilt that we grew up. Yes. Feeling so insecure about money and lacking that confidence and when you approach things from a different place or when you find someone you can resonate with, as far as financial knowledge goes, it's, it changes the game.
0: Yeah, what What is the benefit of that? And what is the motivator using, as you meant, guilt-based and shame-based? And I'm thinking, I still hear it today, uh, commercials that we run and make you feel bad. Well, if you have more than $5,000 in credit card debt, call this. And it's trying to help people, but you can tell just, I don't know, the phrasing or the tone of voice. It feels a little judgy.
3: Absolutely, and I think that that's what makes us disassociate or reject finance completely in the sense that we avoid thinking about it, avoid talking about it, Um, and it dominates our thoughts, and so it creates these really unhealthy money boundaries where we end up saving or hoarding money because we fear that we're never going to have enough, and it also puts us in a place where we feel like we cannot succeed, we won't be able to get out of the position we're in because this is just life now. And so by shifting the narrative and making it more comfortable and safe to talk about, it really changes the way we use our money.
0: And it's hard to know sometimes to where to start to begin to dig out of it. Like people get themselves in debt and it's the balance like, well, I want to pay off debt, but I also need to save money because we want to buy you know, a house in the next year or so. So balancing paying off debt and saving money, its its it seems like nearly impossible sometimes. You feel like you're, you're so up against it.
3: It's something that can eat us alive if we don't take control of it. But something else too is a lot of us are really upset or feel frustrated when we cannot hit all of those traditional milestones that were set forth for us. So if you feel like you need to get married, you need to have kids, you need to buy a house. All of those things require security and financial stability. And if you have debt, it becomes really difficult to actually gain traction and achieve those things. So one thing that's really important is when you're paying off debt is to also provide yourself with the ability to save a small buffer or an emergency fund so that if something does happen that could potentially derail your progress, you have a backup plan and you can continue to make that progress on debt repayment.
0: It's interesting you're talking about the traditional path you're supposed to follow because we did, you know, buy a house last year for the, for you know the first time in my life and I'm 50 years old and I mentioned that on Twitter and I got a couple responses and one was okay boomer. I'm, like, I'm Gen X. Don't call me boomer. We had a much more difficult path than the boomers. <laughs>
3: Yes, totally. Um, it's really interesting because uh, Millennials and Gen X both have a really difficult time building wealth because we've been put through all of these significant world happenings like the pandemic that have completely shifted our ability to accumulate wealth and to build wealth. So I, I love that you waited until you were ready to buy a home at 50. If that's how long it takes, that's how long it takes. It's whatever works so that you can continue to live the lifestyle that makes sense for you.
0: We hear so often, and I'm getting tired of the term, like when I was growing up, it's like, oh, I got a second job, and now it's a side hustle. But it feels like if you, uh, the, you really need to, if you can, have multiple streams of income, if one of those is a side hustle, I hear about passive income. How do you feel about having a multiple streams of income, and how do you make that possible?
3: I love multiple streams of income. I love it because they provide you with protection in moments of emergency. And so if you suffer an unexpected job loss tomorrow, you know that you have a backup plan or a place to reach for more income if you need it. And so I personally have nine streams of income, but I started with one, just like most of us. And so it takes time to build streams of income, but I think a lot of us have more than we realize. We have our full-time job potentially, You might already have a part-time job. You probably have a high yield savings account, which provides you with some interest back. And if you're investing in your future and in a 401k, then right there you have dividends and you have capital gains and you're giving yourself the ability to earn income passively.
0: Now, I never thought about it that way, but savings and, yeah, building equity in your home, things like that are, uh, is a separate stream of income. When you're talking about multiple, multiple streams, I'm thinking like, oh, I've got to have a, a blog and a podcast and something else and monetize all of those. And while that's great, yeah, I didn't think about uh, some of the things you mentioned. That's interesting that we might have some multiple streams with, uh, without realizing it. And how am I not realizing I'm making money?
3: Exactly. I think that we are really ingrained in that that hustle culture that you keep mentioning of like, you have to keep working harder. And if you aren't making enough money, if you don't feel secure, then you're not working hard enough. And that's not necessarily the reality. A lot of us don't have that extra time to allocate towards an additional job. So finding those other more accessible options is key.
0: And well, and as we talked about it earlier, the, the guilt and the shame—you, you're meant to think sometimes like, "Oh, I can't make ends meet. I'm doing the best I can," but you're not doing it. You're, you're looked down upon. You feel like you're a failure, and so many judgments are made when people really need, you know, they need information, they need education. And I don't know about it, you about you, but I was not told anything about, uh, you know, saving money and and building a financial profile in school.
3: Absolutely. I had to learn the hard way. And yeah. I'm sharing this knowledge now so that other people don't have to learn the hard way. You can learn from my mistakes and maybe get ahead. And then when you're my age, hopefully it's less overwhelming and hopefully you have better foothold on your financial future.
0: Any quick tip for our listeners? And I know a lot of people have probably been overworked during the pandemic, working from home, working more hours. What's the first step to take to kind of begin to negotiate for a higher salary?
3: one thing you want to do is your research a lot of us will go into any sort of negotiation not having the confidence that we need to ask for what we deserve and so when you know what you're worth and what your position is valued at it becomes a lot easier to ask for what you want so that's one thing and another thing is i like to tell people that a great thing to do is actually to pretend you're advocating for your best friend or a family member because that way you might feel a lot more confidence and a lot more urgency to ask for what you want because the worst thing that they can say is no
0: that's that's great to try to do that because and that just proves that you don't necessarily see yourself how others see you so putting yourself in the place of describing your friend that's a great tactic i like that definitely And uh, the new book, it's called Financial First Aid, Essential Tools for Confident, Secure Money Management. It is now available where books are sold. The author is my guest, Alyssa Davies. And thank you very much for joining me today.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.